Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Bob Gutton, William Sadler, and Clancy Brown. Based on Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King and written and directed by Frank Darabont. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time, finally, now, to close this Oscar Best Picture winning cast that we that came from you, Matt, uh, all those months ago with the behest that this is going to get us to talk about the Shawshank Redemption. It's the opus, right? Yeah, so here we, here we are from 1994, uh, directed by Mr. Frank Darabound. It's going to be fun to talk about this guy. The, the last time we talked about him was, oh, so many years ago mm. when we did The Mist. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll talk about him a lot. We'll, we're going to talk about his origins with Stephen King because I find that very fascinating as well. And then this film, and it's kind of limping across to the to the finish line with the Oscars. But then the afterlife that this film has had, very poetic, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of religious subtext in this film, and this film has a very significant afterlife where it got its life, right? Resurrected. Yeah, in in a way, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Before we get started, I mean, here we have, you know, some more of the old uh, Bardstown Kentucky bourbon uh, straight whiskey. So this kind of feels like a bourbon that they would be shucking around Shawshank. Uh, but I wanted to ask you while we kind of cheers and toast, cheers, toast, and get going. Mm. Tell me about the first time you saw this film. Was it in the theaters? Was it a rental on TNT endlessly? <laughs> An empty theater about oh, week, man. two weeks into its screening. A buddy of mine named John really wanted to see this film, and the trailer wasn't great. It just kind of looked like a prison film to me, and the title's not great, honestly. Awful. Yeah. And Tim Robbins, you know, Bull Durham's a fine film, but I don't know if that's who you're going to put on the marquee. And, you know, Morgan, there wasn't a lot of star power to this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we sat in the theater. It was myself and um, at that time my girlfriend, but eventually going to be my wife and his girlfriend going to be his wife. We, we kind of doubled that night yeah. and sat in literally an empty theater with the four of us. And then um, about halfway through the film, somebody came in and joined the screening and sat kind of down low, like maybe we're theater hopping or something. Yeah. And I remember when the movie ended, we all, all five of us clapped our crazy asses off. Yeah. Um, but I think that's part of the problem with the film, right? Is mm-hmm. how poorly received it was initially for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Like I said, title, trailer, description, mm-hmm. all male cast, mm-hmm. uh, prison film. Like there's not really a good sellable quality here. And then in particular, they, kind of left Stephen King King's name off a lot of the promotional because it wasn't horror-oriented. So that might have been a mistake, too, because he's at least a name, right? First-time director? Uh, This is actually his second film, I found out. Oh, Uh, But may as well be a first-time director that isn't really a name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things working against this film, but, you know, talk about a transformative experience when you actually sit and watch this thing. How old were you when you saw it the first time? I think I was in high school. I think I was 14 or 15, and Mm -hmm. it was on Turner Classic Movies. Uh, so it was nice cause it was unedited, no commercials. I got to kind of watch it in its entirety. And then this is just one of those movies that was just on cable rotation, T 
TBS, TNT, AMC, like nonstop. It seemed mm-hmm. like you could just on a weekend, it would just be on. Yeah. You could just catch it again. So, no, I'm curious to kind of just, yeah, talk about some of those things and talk about the, some of the reasons why we like it. And then we'll make our case throughout the episode on why this should have won Best Picture. Indeed. Uh, and maybe you talk a little bit about the other little third film uh, floating around this conversation as well. But yeah. I'm excited to jump in. I know this is going to be a fun discussion. Let's dive into our flight question. Good score in this film. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. Thomas Newman. Mm-hmm. Two-parter. Yeah. So this is the flight part, and then the nightcap will round out the second part of this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Stephen King things that have been turned into film, and I would argue probably more than half didn't deliver to the quality of storytelling that he's capable of. The movie was far worse than the that story. That might be a generous percentage. Two-thirds? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly a smaller list of what was good than what was bad. Yes. So you have two choices on this, and you can go either way, and you can even do a combination if you like, and that is I want you to pick three Stephen King properties that have yet to be produced or have been produced that you want to see done again or done, but better or <laughs> justly yeah. this time around. Three, three, two, two, one, one. Yeah. This was a great conversation, or uh, that I had with myself mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to having with you because, mm-hmm. you know, I think I did pick three that have been done before. I did too. Uh, and maybe, you know, there were some okay things there, but I think there's enough content there where the right person in charge could deliver a pretty great film. Yeah. Uh, my number three is thinner. Uh, this is actually a film I revisited recently. It's on HBO Max if you want to watch it, but uh, directed by Tom Holland of Fright Night fame. Mm-hmm. One of his lesser, you know, short stories, this story of this gypsy curse that befalls this very heavy man, and the more he eats, the thinner he gets, and he thinks it's the best diet, right? But it's really a curse. Yeah. It's kind of silly. It's kind of a silly movie, and I think the latex prosthetics on Robert John Burke are not great, right? Uh, there's some questionable moments in it. Joe Montana's floating around that thing. It's It's not a great watch, but... I think the idea of body dysmorphia through eating as you thin yourself out to skeletal form, I think there's some stuff to play with that. So yeah, the whole suburban domestic aspect, I mean, it got me thinking of, yeah, just like that idea and that crux handled maybe not so comedically, maybe taken seriously. I think that could be a winner, but I do too. And I think it suffers from, you know, it's a lower budget King, right? So that's my number three. Good choice. I didn't even remember that film. That's yeah. a really good one. Yeah. My number three. One that we've talked about, and actually we're going to see pretty soon, but um, this leads into where I want to go with the nightcap. Yeah. But it's Salem's Lot. Yeah. Um, this probably isn't a surprise. We've taken several shots at this franchise in the podcast. We've talked about it a lot. It, they've tried a few times. We're going to get another version here in about a month and a half. No, we remember I told you it doesn't have a release date. Oh yeah, so maybe not at all. We'll talk about it when it shows up, if and when. <laughs> um, I want that done, and I want that done with a significant budget, and by that I mean forty plus and a legitimate cast. Yeah. And I'll even tell you who I want to play Barlow. Okay, Fastbender. Ooh, that's pretty good. So 
I'll give you the director. Well, that's going to be the nightcap. Yeah, that'll come later. Yeah, that's the second part. But okay, so my number three is Salem's Lot. Awesome. Number two for you. Number two for me is going to be, you know, another just series of, it's a, it's a, fran- it's a franchise that just, they've never been able to figure out. And the movie that came out is horrendous. Uh, it's the Dark Tower series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just think of all the different films, the gunslinger, you know, just all the, the, the different iterations they could do with that high, high fantasy, right. Yep. With kind of some action, a little bit of horror in there. Yep. Um, I just don't know why they haven't been able to figure that out yet. Not even like through like television, like a limited series, like anything. Did you see the McConaughey Idris Elba film? Yes, yeah, I it, did. it didn't work. Right. So. No, that's a that's a great choice, and that's a good casting. I like the two of the in those two roles. I think that's that's good. Just everything else around that just completely fell apart. I'm with you. Okay, good. Number two for me is Christine. Mm. Uh, that's not really my thing. Man and Machine isn't really necessarily my cup of tea, but I think when I give this to the director that I'm going to mention, you're really going to like the idea of it. Okay. I don't even think that's a terrible film. I really like it actually. It's good B. Yeah, that's good B film. I think it's good B tier Carpenter for me as well. Okay, so there's that piece as well. Mm -hmm. So this is cheating a little bit because I would actually put that probably in the top half of maybe not the top third of his films that actually did work. I would, you too. But I think with this director and with the big cast, I think in the the big budget, this could absolutely slay. Okay. Because I'm not touching maximum overdrive. Oh, no, 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 no. Never. They've done it twice and it really hasn't worked out. Terrible film. My number one. Uh, is Dolores Claiborne mm. in content Salem's Lot's my favorite book. I think Dolores Claiborne, from what I've read of King, I haven't read it all. It's my number two. I just love the. It's one long chapter. I mean, there's no breaks. It's just uh, I almost said Annie Wilkes because it's Kathy Bates in the movie. Yeah, but it's Dolores kind of you know telling her whole life story to these police people that are inve- very true detective like. Mm-hmm. And the movie's okay. Her and Jennifer Jason Lee, David Stratharian's the husband in that. You know, it works pretty well, but suspense-wise, I think there's just so much they could they could really just as a as a thriller, a thriller film, they could really scare the pants off of a lot of people with a decent adaptation. Uh, I think a lot of that would be casting, uh, just in a modern in a modern sense of who who might be in there, and so that might kind of go coincide with the director that I picked for that particular film. Love it. Yeah, it's a good one. You know, I've never seen that film. Really? I never have. Yeah. Uh, I actually uh, had a pretty, uh, you want to hear a funny story? Mm -hmm. Uh, We had rented, uh, my aunt was visiting us, uh, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. And there was a trailer for Dolores Claiborne, like before the movie started on the VHS. And it scared the pants off of me. Mm. Like it like really bothered me. I had nightmares for weeks Mm. and didn't see the film until I was in my 20s and I had read the book. But it's a decent, it's an okay film, but again, it's something I think that can be, I think it can be better. Okay. I might have to check that out. Okay. Uh, my number one is your number two. Dark Tower. I want the whole series. Yeah. Uh, however we do that, probably not film. It's probably more suited for like a full blown Netflix run. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've bitched a lot about there's enough material from this adapted source for four episodes and yet you give me 12. Yes. Um, I don't know how far you are into that series or how much you've read. I read the first five books in that series, mm-hmm. so I've never actually finished to the end. Yeah. But there's plenty there in each book to do a full 12-episode run in each of them. So mm-hmm. you have many, many seasons. Just the first book alone, let's just really give that the treatment it deserves. And that's how it started. Yeah. And Ron Howard was supposed to do an episodic piece on that. Mm-hmm. And then it got shit-canned and brought back and 
Devo hell over and over to what we finally saw, which is trash really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess resembles the book slightly, but the, you know, the book's way better, but that's the whole point for the question. I want the dark tower, but I want the full dark tower and I'm going to move it instead of the big screen to the little screen. I think that's a good idea. Actually. I think mine, I think I'll still pitch as a, as a film and then we'll kind of talk about who, who we have running the show. Right. You could do a Harry Potter thing with that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it could be, I mean, I like the fantasy genre. I don't think there's enough of it. I mean, you know, the superheroes right. certainly dominate this sci-fi fantasy space, but, you know, something in the vein of like a Harry Potter with from the world of King, yeah, mm-hmm. sign me up. Yeah. But it's got to be done well, right? And yeah. It's all in execution. Amen. It's all, isn't that the truth? Isn't that just Hollywood in a nutshell, right? Mm-hmm. It, it could be good, but let's see how they execute it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll see. Speaking of which, uh, this project, new project from Fincher just keeps getting better because remember mm-hmm. I told you it's him and Fassbender. It's yeah. Andrew Kevin Walker who wrote Seven. Yeah. It wrote the script. And then Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing the soundtrack. So Sweet. from they did Social Network and Dragon Tattoo. Oh, this thing just keeps getting better. It, it better be good. Do we have an ETA for release? <laughs> I, it's, it's direct to Netflix and I think it's like Fall, uh, winter-ish, so October, November. So about eight months away. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited. Can't wait. Yeah. So you hear me, Fincher? Deliver. Get it right this time. <laughs> Get this time. Excellent. Well, uh, to, to, your, to your list. To your list. Let's talk about where execution works uh, with our review breakdown of The Shawshank Redemption. This was revenge of a much more brutal and cold-blooded nature. Consider this for... Bullets per victim. Not six shots fired, but eight. That means that he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload so that he could shoot each of them again. Hmm. An extra bullet per lover. Right in the head. You strike me as a particularly icy and remorseless man, Mr. Dufresne. Chills my blood just to look at you. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back. One for each of your victims. So be it. So be it. Mm -hmm. You know what the the opening of this film always reminds me of? It reminds me of the opening of The Fugitive. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's over credits, it's this guy stumbling across this scene, right, of like his wife in The Fugitive. I mean, his wife's actually being attacked by the one-armed man, right? Yeah. But then they kind of cross-cut it with uh, the trial footage, and then that gavel slam, right? I mean, and that's like, it's permanent. It's indicative of the permanency of the decision. And both of those men wrongfully convicted, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of like this opening. I mean, it's 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 nice and subtle, and you know, we see Tim Robbins trying to plead his case, but you just kind of just see the elements working against him, which is just the theme of the film, right? Him him trying to make the best of the situation. I find it decidedly inconvenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a got a bad shake. We think maybe. Yeah, and you got Jeffrey Demun here, uh, uh, Frank Darabont stalwart. He'll show up again in a. In the mist, yeah. and also Walking as Dead. the Dale in The Walking Dead. Yeah, I think it's a really What's good. What's his o- name? Uh, Jeffrey Demun. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think he's in also. He's also in the Green Mile. Yeah, I think you're right. I it, compared to you know last week, you know Forrest Gump starts so sweetly and innocent, and this fucking flowing feather, <laughs> and just like in the the music that I do love. And yeah, him trying to cursing ta- on this podcast. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> dude, last week, dude, we, we, we couldn't stop last week. We were so frustrated. Uh, him, and then he's trying to tell this this story to this woman that doesn't want to hear his whole life tale. Uh, this is just a different change of pace. I mean, tonally, we're just we're making a different movie here. This is grim. This is you know, it's it's a thriller. I almost kind of, you know, first time watching, I was like, well, how much of the mystery of his wrong conviction is going to play into this? And it, and it kind of does a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. I mean, when you get two consecutive life sentences and you hear that gavel slam, I mean, I would be just as shocked as he is in this scene right here. Yeah. What do you think of this opening? Is this is this a good introduction to Andy Dufresne, Mr. Tim Robbins? I love it. And I also love the way that it reads. And there's a line in the screenplay that particularly piqued my interest and was pretty influential on the way that I think... Um, I wrote, and then, you know, we as a team wrote. Yeah. Uh, when you get the bit that's the flashback of Mrs. Dufresne and the golf pro getting it on in the cabin, mm-hmm. um, the line that Darabont wrote for that was, Mrs. Dufresne and the golf pro can't wait to get at each other. Mm. And I thought that was, you know, that's pretty simple writing. That's not very elaborate, and it's not that poetic or, mm-hmm. or prose-worthy. But... It kind of taught me that you can write enough in the screenplay to leave the viewer or reader's imagination to run a bit. And again, this is A-list talent, so it's different than what you're trying to spec. But I thought that that was uh, aptly put, and it's exactly what it looks like on the screen. Yeah. Um, aggressive. Yeah. And as we see Robbins roll up in the car, the bottle's kind of spilling on the seat. You, know, you can tell he's, he's well into that bottle. Yeah. And struggling with um, a bunch of different things. It really does set you up for a belief that he's guilty as all sin Mm -hmm. in this death, which is only going to play off what happens later. All the more importantly, and it's a fantastic opening to a movie. And especially, Mm -hmm. doesn't he kind of look pathetic sitting there in court like... That's just Tim Robbins in a nutshell, man. I mean, it's just, he always has that look on his face. Whether that be Jacob's Ladder or freaking Mystic River, he always has this kind of just like look of like... Hangdog? Yeah, just like, he just like doesn't know, like, he's confused at where he's at, but just like, this guy has no shot at like trying Pit- to defend himself. Pitiful. Pitiful. Yeah, yeah. He's got no shot. Mm-hmm. Um, what's also striking in that scene is how close the suit he's wearing at that is to the one that he escapes in. Oh, yeah. Um... Yeah, he has the same black shoes, right? About the time the gavel fell in this film, when I watched it the first time, was about the time I thought, this is not at all what I thought this movie was going to be. Yeah, and Stephen King, right? I mean, it's just like that name, you're thinking supernatural. I mean, there could be some divine intervention in this film, why not? But Mm -hmm. supernatural, horror, this is a different vehicle altogether. And it kind of speaks to the strengths of King that he's able to kind of walk both sides of the train track, right? I agree. Scare us, the bejesus out of us with vampires and, you know, clowns, and then do something so subtly different. I'm curious if you remember when you saw this the first time, 14, 15, you Mm -hmm. said, when you knew you were in the presence of something that was not your run-of-the-mill movie. Did you know right away? Yeah, I know. Could you tell? Yes. What's What cue do you end up? It's the scene with Brooks. It's, oh fuck yeah! Yeah, it's it, it, that's when I knew I was like, this is this is a movie that's tugging at some different heartstrings. Mm-hmm. It's tugging at the heartstrings of humanity and kind of like what it means to be human. And a very interesting non Walking Dead human condition conversation kind of way. Yeah. Uh, so that's the one I can't wait to talk about. It. I got some audio for that, but that's that's the moment when the film changes for me. 
here we're just kind of really setting the stage of what the world and the environment's going to look like. And I'm glad you brought up the screenplay because I'm going to, I'll mention it a little bit later, but th- this is an amazingly written yeah. screenplay. Beautifully I, I, written I can't screenplay. believe you have Frank Darabound just like, he's a mm-hmm. really talented writer, director, <sighs> right? Yes. That like here, he just kind of laid it all out in the way it reads all the dialogue and then even room for just improvisation. It's perfect. It's uh, you just you you could try so long to write something as good as this, and you would you would fail. You you wouldn't be able to do it. And, and I don't I'd, think he ever really recognized for his greatness in that capacity. I don't think so either. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a great read. I, I was actually thumbing through some of the pages last night, you know, looking to see just how how it read, and just some of the exposition of way the way he sets the stage is so good, mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, we're introduced to Shawshank uh, Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman. And kind of he's kind of in an interesting late career resurgence around this time. You got Glory uh, around here. But this is the film, right? This is the film that kind of introduced the world to Morgan Freeman and his beautiful set of pipes, right? Oh, boy. Uh, this kind of narration that he has. But the first time we see him, I mean, it's him trying to plead, uh, you know, to the parole board whether he should be let out or not. And this kind of just seems like on the regular, right? Once a year they meet with him to see if he's fit for society and he always gets the rejection notice. Pretty well-rehearsed line over mm-hmm. and over again that doesn't seem to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess Red's been in there for quite some time and it's at this point when we see him get rejected, like emphasis on again, but again, yeah, we're looking at a lifer. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at a lot of lifers in this film. You they've know, created a community inside there and that's what's special about this film. Yeah. Um, you said something earlier that I thought was really important. Mm-hmm. If you make a movie and there's not a single female presence in it other than Andy Dufresne's wife getting banged against the cabin wall. Yeah, and the only other female presence is the aforementioned Rita Hayworth, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then a few, like, townies or whatever, like, sec- like background. Um, no, this may as well be the thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you just took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. This may, it, mostly single location, mm-hmm. this may as well be the thing. Yeah. And I think that speaks to, for as much as we hammer on the marketing component of Hollywood, both of those two films, yeah. financially, yeah. not great. Yeah, <laughs> that's putting it lightly. Although wildly great critically. Mm-hmm. Here's what's odd about that, though, Jesse. Yeah. Shawshank may be a little bit more than the thing, but even to the thing too, again, so, but the thing is horror. So it's, it's mm-hmm. in its own subcategory with this other argument that I'm making. I I've never met a person yeah. female or male mm-hmm. that said, I don't like that movie because there's not a woman in no, it. No, no, no. So it poses an interesting question, which is if the movie doesn't thrive because there's not a significant female presence, whether that's love interest or femme fatale or whatever role it might be, princess if it's disney Mm -hmm. then financially you're doomed but male female critically it doesn't seem to matter and those seem to go on really opposite paths don't they that's very difficult to decode it doesn't matter in the critical analysis of the film whatsoever but in the promotional selling of the film oh yeah it matters you know we talk about how perfect top gun both Top Guns were mm-hmm. quadrant rise, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's literally checking all the boxes to get everyone in the seats, right? Right. This film, no. <laughs> I mean, single location, guys in prison, 
Uh, no female characters, no romance subplot. Uh, yeah, there's this is a tough sell. Uh-huh. No supernatural elements from the, the, the world of King, so I get it. I get I get why. But you're right. I, I've never met someone who like I didn't like it because there wasn't like a female presence or like a romantic subplot other than the opening bits. Like, is this New Line? No, this is Castle Rock, and it's yeah, Castle Rock. Yeah. To their credit, <clears throat> it probably was a difficult sell. We have a Stephen King drama. You have a Stephen King what? <laughs> right? I mean, that's probably the conversation. I mean, that shouldn't. I mean, maybe and maybe this is why Castle Rock's perfect for it because mm-hmm. it's Rob Reiner mm-hmm. and he had already done that with Stand By Me, right? Yep. So maybe they knew exactly what this could look like versus mm-hmm. anyone else. And for everybody out there, mm-hmm. Stand By Me is two versions or two other stories compressed the body and... Oh, I forget what the other story is. In the book where this was introduced, and that's four seasons. Mm-hmm. That's four short stories that he wrote. It's the body. Oh, it's different, different seasons. Or different seasons. Yeah. Whatever, I forget what the third one is, but it's the body, Shawshank Redemption, and then um, another one in mm-hmm. there. Uh, <laughs> I, maybe that's just a tough sell, but yeah. even like Rob Reiner slayed it mm-hmm. with Stand By Me. So it wasn't that this was untraversed territory Stephen King in the not horror realm stand by me killed it yeah so I don't it's a it's an odd beginning and if you actually watch the trailer you've seen the movie now so it's different maybe I don't think the trailer sucks it's just sort of quiet yeah I think kind of like the whole film is kind of quiet the exact opposite of Forrest Gump which is like in your face (laughs) with sweetness yeah Okay, and, and, and nostalgia, right? Let's bring, yeah, yes. Yeah. Let's bring up something here. If we're going to measure a film, ugh, are we really about to do this? I'm going to pose this to you. If we're going to measure a film on how sweet, and if you don't like that word, then I'll say sincere, yeah. genuinely sincere it is. Yeah. This wins in a landslide. Yeah. The Forrest Gump sweetness, sincerity, genuineness seems so contrived compared to what this film is able to do mm-hmm. in that same manner. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Fucking box of chocolates compared to like <laughs> prison rape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How do you take that and somehow round the edges enough to where you still find a moment at the end of this film? I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Is there a more joyous moment in film that you can think of than the end of this with Red and Andy on the beach? It's great. No, it's a fantastic ending. Do you fight? Do you fight the tears every time you watch it? You know, I, I just, it's just, I, I love how it ends. Yeah, and, and I'll talk a little bit later because, like, that scene kind of originally goes on, and there's they talk to each other. Like, I just, I really like how it just dissipates and. The credits. I mean, we get it. This is what they've been talking about the whole film. Like it's the and the music. I mean, Thomas Newman's killing it in that moment. I think mm-hmm. that's what's helping, right? Yes. No, I'm with you. I I much. I, I I'd rather take this difficult trudge through the human condition for the goal of sincerity and hope, mm. which is the same thing that Forrest Gump's trying to do. But right. it's, it, Forrest Gump's just so in your face with it. Yeah. And then I met the president. Again. Again, yeah, just like yeah, this is too much. It's heavy handed. It's it's force fed to you. Whereas this is, you really have Natural. to take take it by the inches here. Uh, yeah. I really I really like the establishment of Shawshank. This sweeping aerial shot. We got to talk to you. This is Roger Deakins, man, shooting the hell out of this film. This guy would get nominated for like 12, 14 best cinematography awards. And wouldn't win until Blade Runner 2049 in 2018. Like, Jesus, like that guy was overdue here. Mm-hmm. 
this is a really well shot film. Mm-hmm. It looks stark, cold, sterile. It's it's claustrophobic. It's wide open. It's up close and personal when it needs to be. And that was where a lot of the conflict on set of I mean, Darabont and Deacons, you know, really kind of went toe to toe on like what this thing should look like. And I think they both kind of won at the end of the day. But you know, to to two uh, creatives really kind of going at it for the betterment of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to get their vision and what would look good in each scene. I just got to tell you, I, I love cinematography. I love when it's done well. And we're talking about one of, we're talking about the best person to have ever done it here in, yeah. in this film. And I think we forget because, you know, his Cohen collaborations are really pronounced, but I think we forget he did the Shawshank Redemption. This is a really well shot film. Mm-hmm. And then that music sweeping as we're following the bus coming in and then all the, the fresh fishes, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then th- these guys taking bets, and we kind of got this collective of Freeman, William Sadler, uh, you know Floyd, and all these guys. Uh, yeah, this is their little posse, right? Mm-hmm. Their prison posse, and they take bets on who's going to break the first night. It's an interesting little bet. I mean, they get I guess they get to play this game once a year or once you know whenever a big batch comes in, with the stakes being cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Seems appropriate. That's what they bet with. They they take solace in the little things throughout this entire film. Ten cigs is may as well be a million bucks to these guys, mm-hmm. and I really uh, specifically like their reaction to the film that they've seen endlessly. Yeah, each time the moment happens, I got I got the audio for that too. Gilda, they lose their minds. I love it. Mm-hmm. Do you like Gilda? <sighs> I know I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. What in, could be in in this film? It's I think it's a good choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I really dig these guys, and and so then we meet our authoritative figures here. We have Bob Gunton as the warden of Shawshank, and then I think the guy that almost like steals every scene he's in, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. Um, what's his name in the movie? Um, that magnanimous prick even manages to sound, or that colossal prick even manages to sound magnanimous. Um, Hang on, I got it. I got it right here. Byron Hadley. Byron Hadley. There you go. Yeah, you got the first name. Pretty <laughs> so darn good for there, me. There you go. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Uh, this is kind of the right hand, like the, the the arm of the law of the warden, right? Mm-hmm. He imposes the will of whatever the warden tells him to do. And oh my God, this guy's the worst. Yeah. But there's a point in the film where I'm like, is he turning a little bit where he's like an ally to these guys? And then by the end, it's like, no, no. he's not. This guy sucks. Yeah. Oh, he, he's so he's so good in this in, in this role, and he would always play like this guy for his like entire career, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think of their little initiation? They hose them down, they de-louse, de-louse them. Oh, that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. And naked, and then you get your prison garb, and then go spend the night in in the cell. And then we see who breaks, right? And it's fat ass, <laughs> and it's fat ass binos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stark, harsh. This new environment that you're in and everybody in there is cheering against you because they want to win cigarettes based on how we are going to break. Yeah. And you're not in Kansas anymore and there's nothing pleasant about this. Yeah. Except, except if you can survive long enough, yeah. the camaraderie among the lifers that you spend with. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, whether you want to call the single location being mostly at a prison, but single location, at least in theme, because the movie has to take place inside the walls of the Shawshank Penitentiary. What you do get is a prison movie wrapped inside a buddy film. Cause yeah. that's what this eventually becomes in a very odd way and not a road trip buddy film, just a stationary buddy film. Um, 
And I have to give Deacons and Darabont credit because with as little action as this movie has, Mm -hmm. you have to find a way to make the settings in the prison not the same mundane, boring thing that caused Darabont to leave The Walking Dead, as a matter of fact. Like, (laughs) I'm not shooting another scene in this fucking prison with no money with the same stairwell and the same two prison cells. Yeah. So they find it. There's another concrete wall, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is challenging inside a prison because that's what it looks like bars and concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a lot of decoration because the prisoners are all in the same outfit and so are the cops. So yeah. think about what the limitations are. Yeah. So how do you get creative? Well, you do this. And both of those guys managed to paint this very beautiful gray and blue hued film mm-hmm. with what's essentially a stark, cold, harsh environment. And that's a really terribly long answer to what do I think of this beginning mm-hmm. or what do I think of this and yeah. what's, but it, it's, it's great. What are your thoughts on, on what sh- life at Shawshank is like when these people get there the first night? You're oh, in there the first night, Jesse. No, what no, are you no I'm not making it. I'm not making it. Dude, are I'm, you cracking? I'm, I'm badass. <laughs> are you? <laughs> and then dude, I'm getting beat to death, to right? Death. Bleed out on the table. And then that's no big deal too to to the guards or the warden. It's just like you get everyone in line and if they act out of line, you just beat them until they stop, right? Yeah. They stop complaining. And yeah. for this guy, I mean, I love the way it's revealed too. I mean, William Sadler's like, you know, careening over his cigs, right? And then he's like, hey, well, how, how's, how's fat ass doing in the infirmary? He's like, you're dead. <laughs> simple, dead. As, simple as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these guys don't blink an eye. It's like this, it happens once a year, once every few months. Yeah, no, this is rough. This is like, yeah, pre-prison reform, prison life, 1949, I believe we're in. Yeah. Man, no thank you. No thank you. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, maybe I'd read, hang myself in my jail cell. Like, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. The solitariness of just being there and the limitations of kind of like the rigmarole. I mean, you're going to bust your ass doing laundry all day or just like, and you got two life sentences. Just end it at that point. I mean, yep. it's it's really hard to find any type of hope, which is, I mean, the big theme of, of this movie. I don't know how you wade through the shit to find hope in this scenario when you have two consecutive life sentences. You're here your whole life unless you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And what I could admire about Andy Dufresne is he does try to make the most of it, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll play the first little scene here between uh, him and him and Red. I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. I wonder if you might get me a rock hammer. A what? A rock hammer. What is it and why? What do you care? Well, if it was a toothbrush, I wouldn't ask questions. I'd just quote a price. But then a toothbrush is a non-lethal object, isn't it? Fair enough. Rock hammer is about six or seven inches long. Looks like a miniature pickaxe. Pickaxe? Rocks. Rocks. Quartz. Quartz. Some mica. Shale. Limestone. So? So I'm a rock hound. At least I was in my old life. I'd like to be again on a limited basis. Or maybe you'd like to sink your toe into somebody's skull. No, sir. I have no enemies here. Wait a while. Word gets around. Sisters have taken quite a liking to you. 
Especially Boggs. I don't suppose it would help any if I explain to them I'm not homosexual. Neither are they. They have to be human first. They don't qualify. Pull queers, take by force. It's all they want or understand. But if I were you, I'd grow eyes in the back of my head. Thanks for the advice. Well, that's free. You understand my concern. Well, if there's any trouble, I won't use the rock hammer, okay? And I'd guess you want to escape. Tunnel under the wall, maybe. <laughs> I missed something here, what's funny? You understand when you see the rock hammer. What's an item like this usually to go for? Seven dollars in a rock and gem shop. My normal markup's 20%. But this is a specialty item. Risk goes up, price goes up. It's making it even 10 bucks. 10 it is. Waste some money if you ask me. Why is that? Folks who run this joint love surprise inspections. They find it, you're gonna lose it. Before we talk about that, their first interaction, right? Uh, I did notice for the first time there's a great line when so when they're beating fat ass and all the guards are like, hey, leave them alone. And they're just like, they're all yelling down. There's a great line of dialogue that is one of the prisoners, I don't know who it is, but he yells out, you guys run this place like a fucking prison. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I never noticed that before. That's that's hilarious. Mm. Um, (laughs) But friendship's got to start somewhere. And this is this first one, you know, Morgan Freeman, a red... is a guy who can procure items for guys at the right price. Uh, and, you know, he, he sneaks them in, and, you know, so, you know, Tim Robbins wants this rock hammer. And, you know, what I like about that is, you know, from the first night, he's already thinking, how do I get out of this place, right? And so he gets this hammer, and his, his goal by the end of the film is, like, he's going to chisel his way out. Um, but have it be as inconspicuous as something like this. That way I'm not bringing in a jackhammer, right? Mm-hmm. Bringing in this little small item but i i love the camaraderie i love the friendship i like that it's a little yeah a little hostile yeah. but like a little there's a little pushback from red but you can kind of see him kind of coming around to, to andy's side here and then as he kind of tells him you don't want to make enemies here with the sisters yeah the sisters mark Ralston, you know who passed on uh bugs who james gandolfini oh wow i can see that Who would have been great right yes uh, Mark Ralston's really good in this film as well, who I know mostly as one of the colonial Marines and aliens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's telling them, don't make, you're going to have enemies whether you think it or not. And he's like, I didn't picture him as queer, but he says, well, they have to be human first. And I think that's huge in this film, right? Yes. Okay, so talk about the, the non-female thing aside. There's no female characters. These guys are in here for life. They're lifers. It's a natural part of the human life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess eventually you're just like, well, I got to get it in some shape or form, yeah. whether you're homosexual or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's shocking to Andy to for him to discover. And we see we see Boggs, and he's just like, this is part of it, and I'll take it by force if I have to. Mm-hmm. I'm a rough man. Yeah. And Andy has to do battle with these guys several times, and he's on the wrong end of the stick every time. Just right? about every time. Yeah, outnumbered, outmatched. But fresh, I, but, fresh bruises. But sexually, I mean, just talking about the human needs, want and needs uh, as a man, that all makes sense. And the way Darabound fleshes it out through these characters and, and how they uh, end up going about it, 
think it's really well done. It's I do too. It's it's not in your face. It's it just makes sense in the world that they establish as Shawshank Prison, right? Just in this opening dialogue between him and Red, we establish budding friendship that's not quite there yet and a little bit tit for tat and a little bit uh, slightly hostile. Yeah. If it's not hostile, at least impatient. The savage nature that these people live in day by day, the lack of fem- like female involvement or availability. But this is the thing too that's established in this, and I think it's really important. And that is there is a channel to the outside world that allows some, whether you want to call it contraband or for lack of a better term, screenwriting, interest quotients to get things into Shawshank that we don't have to say, well, stuff just gets into prison sometimes and that's one of the graces we have to offer this film. No, they create an economy Mm -hmm. that explains how we can get illicit or illegal or unapproved or whatever the word you want to use items into Shawshank because that rock hammer... Mm -hmm metaphorically and physically is the unica key to this film. Oh, nice. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's the linchpin of the, like, per per apparatus, mm-hmm. per tangible item. It's the linchpin to this entire film. Yeah. You might argue the Bible, but I'm going to say the, the, um, the rock hammer slightly, slightly ahead of it on the scale. Mm-hmm. And maybe Rita Hayworth, too. But, so we get, but then that That's, also explains how we get Rita, Rita Hayworth in here, too. Yep. No, this is all really good, and we we finally get our first one. So Andy's, you know, making enemies. You know, he's getting raped left and right from Boggs and the sisters, right? Getting beat up. I mean, he's got a real shitty life here. Um, and then we get this moment, you know, so occasionally, instead of doing laundry mm-hmm. or whatever, they get to we get to do, like, a surprise detail, right? And they've been selected, thankfully, to... Retar the roof, I guess. That doesn't sound like fun to me, but it gets you outside, right? Some fresh air. And so they're out here tarring this thing, and its I bet it smells like hell, and it's just its not pleasant. And he just overhears the guards talking about this, you know, sum of money that our um, Hadley's come into. And he's like, well, they're going to tax the shit out of it. He's like, so they may as well not be a gift, right? Mm -hmm. And Andy saunters over here, and... We learn, I guess, a good attribute of him. And, you know, even though he's been accused of double homicide, this guy was a smart man outside of the fence, right? A good tax guy, financially savvy. And he kind of gets him, he, uh, he curries a favor, right? Yeah. You do trust her. There's no reason you can't keep that 35000 What did you say? 35000 35000 All of it. All of it? Every penny. You better start making sense. If you want to keep all that money, give it to your wife. The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. Oh, shit. Tax-free? Tax-free. IRS can't touch one cent. You're that smart banker would kill his wife, aren't you? Why should I believe a smart banker like you? So I can end up in here with you? It's perfectly legal. Go ask the IRS. They'll say the same thing. Actually, I feel stupid telling you this. I'm sure you would have investigated the matter yourself. Yeah, fucking A. I don't need no smart wife-killing banker to tell me where the bear's sitting in the buckwheat. Of course not. But you do need someone to set up the tax-free gift for you, and it'll cost you. A lawyer, for example. Bunch of ball-washing bastards. Right. I suppose I can set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> co-workers? Get him. That's rich, ain't it? I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. It's only my opinion. Sir. 
What are you, Jimmy, staring at? Back to work! Let's go work, Jimmy. And that's how it came to pass that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning drinking icy cold Bohemia-style beer, courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Drink up while it's cold, ladies. The colossal prick even managed to sound magnanimous. We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, he spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. Hey. Want a cold one, Andy? No, thanks. Gave up drinking. You could argue he'd done it to curry favor with the guards. Or maybe make a few friends among us cons. Me, I think he did it just to feel normal again. It's a great little scene. It's tough to determine what's the better score, Newman or Freeman. Yeah. Because the amount well, of narration together. that happens. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the amount of narration in this film that he offers is a no-no on anybody that's ever writing a script. You cannot have this much voiceover. Yeah. But... It goes back to something else that's really important, and I think where Stephen King excels as a writer is in his ability to tell a story. Yeah, He gets the art of storytelling. I've often argued there's no more powerful six words in the English language than let me tell you a story. Mm -hmm. And if you say that, put it to test, all ears and eyes go quiet and on you when you say that Mm because people just naturally want to hear that. And so when this happens... In this film, when we get these breaks where Freeman read, narrates, you feel like you're sitting there, I remember as a kid, at the public library for story time. And then you get not some story about a princess or a dragon, but this very harsh drama. And essentially what he's doing is he's describing what we're seeing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sprinkled. Yeah. With these great moments of extreme grandeur and joy. So who would have thought three bottles of suds would amount to a hill of beans? But in this film, Mm -hmm. it's everything because it gives them a chance to escape the walls of Shawshank for just long enough to possibly forget I'm in here for my life. Yeah. I think it's a very beautiful scene. Uh, It's it's like the first moment of levity in this film. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've read that this is kind of a representation, you know, if you want to, our Christian allegory here of like the last supper, which yeah. sure, why not? Sure. But, you know, I kind of just think of it just, it's, it's, it's a win. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in a film filled with losses, you know, loss of freedom, loss of innocence, loss of yourself. It's a win in a sense of normalcy that like, we all remember that time when we were able to like crack open a beer with some buddies and just kind of shoot the shit. Right. Right. And he's Drink able- some bourbon talking about movies. Yeah, exactly. Ten thirty yeah. in the morning. Uh, yeah, it, it, he he wins one over, and I think the most you know profound part of this entire scene is that 
he's sitting there and he's not drinking. And I like that he tells him, you know, like, no, I gave up drinking. Because the last time we saw him drinking was when he allegedly killed his lover, right? Mm -hmm. He stopped drinking that day, right? Yeah. He gave it up then. Good uh, catch. That's a good catch. Decided to be to be sober. But I love when William Sadler, because Sadler's been giving him a little bit of hell. Like, well, what, the, what the fuck do you care of what, what fat ass his name was and this and that? And he's kind of been giving, giving it to Andy a little bit rough. And here's a moment. It's, 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 it's an olive branch of like, you want a cold one, Andy? You like a cold one, Andy? He's got friends now. And that's, I think that's great. And the, the music, it's at sunset. I mean, just it's just, it's, it's. Darabont slays this scene. The way he wrote it, the way he shot it, uh, it's, it's perfect. This, this is a great scene. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film. I couldn't have said it any better. And standing up in the face of authority, which Andy's going to do a few times. Here you're going to go to the guy that you've already seen kill a man <laughs> and tell him, and hopefully you're smart enough to have him pull you back off the ledge, right? And say, hey, I'll help you out if you give me the chance and just tell about my buddies here. Mm-hmm. I, I really dig it. I, I, I really like it. Yeah. Uh, and then here we have the, the moment with uh, Rita. Here she comes. This is the part I really like is when she does that shit with her hair. Oh, yeah, I know. I've seen it three times this month. Uh, Gilda, are you decent? Me? Understand you're a man that knows how to get things. Yeah, I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. What do you want? Rita Hayworth. What? Can you get her? So this is Johnny Fair. I've heard a lot about you, Johnny Fair. Really? Take a few weeks. Weeks? Well, yeah, Andy. I don't have a stuff down in front of my pants right now, I'm sorry to say. But I'll get her. Relax. I love the react, especially William Sadler to the the back right shoulder of Freeman is just like they know this movie in and out because it's probably one of three films they have in their little film library, right? Yes. And they get this little hair flip moment, uh, and these guys lose their shit. I mean, this is this is next to going to like a strip club. This is as close as it's going to get for them, right? Mm-hmm. So them fantasizing about this supreme beauty on the screen, like they'll take it in as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And if it's euphoric every time, I don't care if I see it once a day, like I'm going to react the same way. For me, this would be like uh, Batman with like his bat wings, like <laughs> I'd be like, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's good. Uh it's a great moment, but then the significance of Rita Hayworth here, uh, and I want you to get me Rita Hayworth, which, okay, you're going to smuggle a human being in here, but I think they both, there's an, a mutual understanding between these two, but the, he knows what he's talking about, right? Kind of like, I, I know what, what, what you want me to get for you. But this is what the short story's named, right? It's Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. So... What do you think of that? What do you think of her specifically? And, you know, me and you would probably pick someone else. Like, I'd probably pick Ingrid Bergman in Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And you might pick, like, uh, mm-hmm. Irene Dunn in Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it's pretty significant because it's the female presence of the film. And she's the linchpin that hides the real truth of what Andy's doing. What do you make of all that? I think if we take it and jump forward a little bit to when he actually acquires Rita Hayworth, and that would be the poster that Red gets him that is hanging on the wall of his cell. Before you know what's happening, what we we witness is Andy kind of laid slumped against his bed, arms up, relaxing, 
just staring at this gigantic picture of Rita Hayworth from Gilda, literally this scene. And as we're watching him look at her, we're imagining what his fantasies are or, and I don't even mean to be perverse, but like what life outside of the walls of Shawshank would be like. And as on the nose as that is, just behind the picture lies what's one of the greatest turns or surprises in all of filmdom. But we're watching Andy escape and as we're watching Andy escape, metaphorically we think, and yes, metaphorically, we're actually watching him calculate physically on how to escape. And I think the fact that it's Rita Hayworth, it could be Monroe, it could be Irene Dunn, it could be Greta Garbo, it could be insert. Well, it is Monroe later. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. right. Um, it could be any of the women that end up protecting his ability to get through them to the other side for a new life. And I think this is a good question. Let me ask you something. Yeah. Is it noteworthy mm -hmm. that he has to go through her, literally, physically penetrate the poster, oh, gee, yeah. through that hole, <laughs> yeah. to be born again? Yes. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's like, it's it's sex and birth at the same time, right? And for as much as this movie is devoid of women, yeah. I have to say, it's such a complimentary piece to women. If you're watching yeah. Andy look at, Gre uh, look at Rita Hayworth, yeah. and all things great are on the other side of her... That's such a strong statement about a movie that's devoid of women being very pro-women at the same time. Yeah. Think about why we, you know, it's an attainable goal of what's what's past it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that's, you know, he has enough time to lay there and pontificate about like, I'm trying to escape from this place. And so he sits and looks at this beautiful poster and that's the goal. I'll just stare at it all night. And think about why we put posters of swimsuit models or whatever yeah. on our walls, which, you know, I never had one. You know, I had like Frodo Baggins on my wall. That's awesome. You never went through him, I hope. <laughs> I didn't, no. But uh, we we put them on our walls, you know, as adolescent little boys, teenagers, cause as attainable goals. Like, I want a woman like that, right? Yep. And for Andy, it's like, well, I want what's past that. I want what's beyond the veil of Rita Hayworth, which is freedom. Well, so, and if on the other side of that poster lies hope, then what he has to go through, if we're going to play out this thematic thing that you and I are posing, mm -hmm. he's got to go through this issue of women. Mm -hmm. And that's what's hung him up in prison. Yeah. And until, like, I bet you have the sound and we'll play it later. When he has the conversation with Red about mm -hmm. being a bad husband. Yeah. When he finally forgives himself for the act that we find out he didn't commit, mm -hmm. but still is, I think holding himself partly responsible for because, you know, she died and had he not been a bad husband and more attentive to her needs, maybe she doesn't end in the arms of her lover and then maybe they don't get shot and yada, yada, yada. But when he finally gets through or goes through that obstacle, on the other side of that is the newfound Andy. Yeah, that's just so beautiful. Do you think there's a little bit of subtext there too with, you know, Stephen King writing something like that of having to, and I've never read Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. I need to, mm -hmm. but... Stephen King also trying to write through some shit of also being a bad husband around this time, right? Yeah, strung out like hell coke right out now. of his mind, yeah. a, a, a drunk, and like he's a father at this time, trying to be a husband, and it's just like him trying to work through some of his shit as well. I mean, right? What we know, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Sure, yeah. I think that's I think that's interesting and and very fascinating. So. You know, Boggs kind of come and get the best of him again. They put Andy in the infirmary for months, like near like beat him to an inch of his life, I think is what they say. Mm -hmm. And this is where I kind of think Clancy Brown's maybe kind of 
turning it around a little bit where then he beats Boggs mm-hmm. to paralysis mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and nonverbal. I eats the rest of his meals through a straw. Like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, dude, Hadley's not to be trifled with. No. Uh, and that's where I, that's it for me. I kind of thought maybe he's sticking up for Andy a little bit. Like he saw that he beat him up and he's going to give him a taste of his own medicine. Mm-hmm. Then later, I mean, that just kind of goes to shit. I want to talk a little bit and then we'll get into this next section, which is him working at the library with Brooks, right? How we got here, right? Frank Darabont and Shawshank Redemption. So I don't know if we talked about this when we did the mist or any of the early Stephen King episodes we did on the podcast, but there's a thing out there, and I think it's still, you know, liable that you can, Stephen King has the dollar babies, which is for a, you pay Stephen King a dollar for access to one of his, I think the short stories, right? And you can make a short film of it, you can do with it what you will, but there's a lot of caveats in that, like, he still owns it, and you can't profit from it. Like, I think you could show it at, like, at a film festival, but, like, that's, like, the you can't really... I don't even think you can post it to YouTube or, like, Vimeo or anything like mm-hmm. that. But it's an interesting way in, and in the early 80s, it was kind of an avenue for young filmmakers to kind of get their foot in the door with the name, like, King, who was at the height of his powers, right? Mm-hmm. 82 King? Dude, get out of here. Right. So, Frank Darabont, and I actually watched it this week. You can watch it on YouTube. You should check it out, too. Okay. He uh, did one of these dollar baby deals with King for uh, one of the short stories in Night Shift called The Woman in the Room, which is kind of like a euthanasia story. I don't know if you remember that one, but uh, I watched it, and just watching you can see the seedlings of Shawshank in this. Mm. In fact, the guy that plays uh, Floyd uh, plays a prisoner in this little short film. Mm. Mm. It's it it's it doesn't look like a student film. It looks like a really professionally well crafted, put together little thirty minute thing about you know my mom. My mom's got cancer. How can I have her, her have her go in peace, right? And so it's interesting and really thought provoking. But that kind of got him in league with King, and this is where it gets good. So he knew, and he's always said that the woman in the room was the probably the best dollar baby that's ever been made of any of those, right? Uh, so after Darabont's first scr- official screenplay credit, he's made it, right, as a screenwriter, which was Dream Warriors. Right. <laughs> Fred, Nightmare 3 Dream Warriors, yeah. which is awesome, right? Uh, he goes and purchases the rights to Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption for $5,000. Which Oh, my God. Shit, right? I mean, at, at this point, chump change. I mean, we, we could go purchase the rights to Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh and Steve, I, th- I think King was like, that's okay, cool. Yeah, you can buy it. But like, I don't know how you're going to turn that into a movie. Like King didn't see the future film potential of mm. this story. And I think a lot of that is the strength of Darabont, which is the ability to flesh this out with all the stuff we've been talking about and we're going to continue to talk about. And this is my favorite part of the story. So King never cashed the $5,000 check. Instead, I think after this film came out, I think he, he framed the check and gave it back to Darabont and left him a little note. Mm. Uh, let me, I want to hmm. read, read what it said. Cause you know, you know, we give King a lot of flack, but I think the guys, you know, at the end of the day, he's, you know, he's a pretty decent uh, guy. He wrote a little note that said, in case you need bell money, love Steve. Awesome. And gave it back to him. That's so awesome. never, never did anything with it for That's the awesome. rights to this story that became in the conversation of one of the best films ever made. I hmm. think, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And then so, you know, Darabont's trying to get this thing made and all this conversation of like, well, we don't want to make this. This is a prison movie, right? 
goes to Castle Rock. How fitting, right? Castle Rock, Stephen King. I mean, it's, it's kismet at this point. And Rob Reiner was like, this is great. This screenplay is great, Frank. I want to make this movie. And Darabont stuck to his guns. and was like, I really want to be the one that makes this. And to Reiner and Darabont's credit for sticking to their guns, uh, Darabont gets to direct and Rob Reiner's like, I'll, you know, this is a big project for you. Your first big project, I'll serve on as like, like a mentor for you. And if you need to like shoot anything off of me, I'll be there to help you along the way. Wow. I thought that was pretty cool. And then when we talk about the producer, I think her name is, uh, she was the one that was, you know, mentioned in the nominations for, uh, best picture. Cause mm-hmm. she's the producer, Liz, uh, um, no, 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 no. Yeah. Glatzer. Yeah. yeah. It's like the only time I've ever heard of like producer producer ideas and notes having an impact on the film. She was the one that recommended Morgan Freeman as red. Wow. Cause in the short story, red is he's a white Irishman red, red, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to have the foresight, be like, look at this guy, Morgan Freeman, it makes the film. Mm-hmm. And then she has another note later with the end. She's the one that recommended don't do this, this little bit with the, uh, the dialogue at the, at the end, you know, you know, uh, fade out, be done. Yeah. That was like a note from her. It was just like, the, and the, there's one other instance I'll have to look it up, but it was like those decisions made, made the movie better in, in those instances. So to that, I mean, you tell me that story and it's one incident or example after another of people just acting like good human beings. Yeah. So the mojo around this film for a movie that's based on hope, yeah. giving hope a chance seems to be, <laughs> Very natural. And maybe that speaks to the heavy handedness of the Forrest Gump thing that we talked about. Mm-hmm. This just happened naturally. Rob Reiner actually took a back seat. I can't stand Rob Reiner, by the way, but he took a back seat and let this burgeoning director tackle this that Steve Stephen King never cashed the check. It's just surrounded by good positive mojo. Yeah. And not to get too hurdy gurdy on this on the podcast or hurdy-gurdy. be too, you know, mystic, but yeah, maybe maybe there's something there. And in one of his inspirations, I think this is very apt when talking about Shawshank Redemption. So when he was writing the screenplay, he was really influenced by the films of Frank Capra, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life were like kind of in, inspirational in the crafting of this story. And you can kind of see it, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you, that, that that sense of hope through adversity, uh, that both of those, Jimmy Stewart, right? I mean, if Shawshank's made in 49, it's, it's Jimmy Stewart as Andy, sure, right? Sure, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I get it. I, I get where he's coming from and his influences. So this is a tall order to get this thing to the fin- finish line. And then that's not even, we'll get to the rest of the battle when no one went to see this film and it didn't mm-hmm. kind of leave an imprint until way later. I mean, there's some divine power hanging over this film mm-hmm. from the word go, right? Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Now, so we catch up with Andy here. So he gets a little job here working in the library with Brooks, who's been working here for 30 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> just shucking books to the guys that want to read. I guess that's what I would be doing. You just give me the latest book that I can go through. But does a really good job of trying to improve the facilities. All these letters he's writing to get new, fresh books to the library that, you know, everyone thinks he's crazy, but... That's going to pay off a little bit later. And then he starts doing the taxes for all the guards here, like really trying to get the most for them, like being a genuine, good-hearted person uh, for all these people that are just putting you down all the time, right? The goodness of Andy trying to make the most of it. And just, I guess, I guess, yeah, just have favors, right? And just maybe they'll help me out or maybe they won't beat me up and all this and that. 
has a nice skill set. Why not put it to use? Mm-hmm. What I love about that is you can see how evil and how the evilness of Warden Norton is set up because he's manipulating the situation with captive audience, shall we say, mm-hmm. to run these taxes. And what he's doing with Andy is two things. Number one, measuring his talents and then also seeing how malleable he might be to the warden's uh, economic pursuits. That's what's so great about this. It's all set up so well. Nothing just comes out of left field without any preparedness. Everything builds upon either like any previous scene. And this kind of throwaway bit that's almost comedic, this line of prison guards meeting with Andy and Red so he can do their taxes, you would never think that that would be some circumstance that would happen in any real reality. But yet here it is, this thriving cottage industry. And Red likes it because it gets him out of the, the wood shop. And once a month, yeah. Once a month. Yeah, pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, we're, we've are we been here several years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. like we're, we're serving a double lifer. Ten maybe. Yeah, we've been here a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're getting into like the mid to late 50s here because that's when Monroe shows up on the poster and we kind of know this is like in her heyday. Uh, let's talk about Brooks because we're going to get to this moment here. So Brooks is working at the library and then we come into a scene where he has William Sadler at knife point and we find out the reason he's freaking out on everyone is because they're going to let him out. Right. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to let out. He wants to kill him so he can stay in the prison. Jesus. Uh, and then we go and man to Darabont's credit. We spend, I think a good 10 minutes with this following Brooks out of the facilities into everyday life. We'll play the clip and then we'll kind of talk about just kind of what this looks like. Sometimes after work, I go to the park and feed the birds. I keep thinking Jake might just show up and say hello, but he never does. I hope wherever he is, he's doing okay and making new friends. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway so they'd send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it. Sort of like a, a bonus. I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss. Not for an old crook like me. So Brooks went into Shawshank and... They say the year. I think it's 1908, 1907. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been in here for 50 years almost. And then they let him go and they're like, okay, go exist in society. And nothing's more indicative of that when he's on the street and he almost gets hit by a car. I mean, this guy barely knew what a car was when he went in, right? Mm-hmm. The life is way too fast in 1950 for this little old man yeah. who knew life as very quaint in the tens, right? Uh, this is really sad. I mean, I bet this happens a lot to people that, you know, are incarcerated for such a long time and then get out. It's just, they don't know how to 
exists in society. You get used to the walls. You get used to the routine. And then now he has a job. He has arthritis. He can't double bag that old man. Uh, this ain't a world for for Brooks. Right. He's a man out of time. He's a man out of place. And I think the tragic part is, is, is he realizes that, and his solution is like, well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna kill myself. I'm gonna hang myself in this little rinky dink apartment. I'd rather be in my jail cell than this place. Institutionalize, yeah. getting used to life on the inside so you can't handle it on the outside. And I buy that. Yeah. Everything is at this time, you know, like this very constrained, structured environment, and now you're set free to just figure it all out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course you want to go back. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you miss your friends. Yep. Again, though, as as tough as this is to watch, and when Brooks is hanging there and on the the wall above him as Brooks was here, yeah. etched in the wood mm-hmm. with his pocket blade. Yeah. It's also still a great setup Mm -hmm. because when you get to that bit with thread, you're like, Oh shit, it's going to happen again. He's going to do it too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. When, when he hung himself, I'm glad that you brought that up and there really isn't anywhere to go because the camera's not in no hurry to leave that shot of Mm -hmm. him hanging there. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're in the middle of something at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That that was the moment that was, I was like, what is going on here? I was like, there's, there's an effect that this prison is having on the people. It's, them going outside of that, it's 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 not a good situation for no. them. No, no, yeah, that was the turning point for me, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then we we like followed that up with my favorite scene of the entire film. So Andy's letter writing has done him some good, and he's gotten all these brand new library books and all these records, and he's just like, oh my god, like it. Actually, it I think it took six years. It, I, is I think is what he says. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the guards are really on him. They want him to uh, get this shit out of here by the time I'm dropped. Was he pinch a loaf? Pinch I think, a loaf. Mm-hmm. I think what he says, great description. Yeah. Uh, and he sees this record collection. He's just like, well, what the hell? And so he throws on its uh, excerpt from The Marriage of Figaro. Because uh, these men haven't heard music in decades. Right. And so he starts playing this thing over the loudspeaker and he knows the wrath this is going to incur. But like, I love the effect that it has on that. They're like, they're statuesque. They're just like in awe at like how beautiful it sounds, the beauty of music and what transformative, what that can do to a person. And in the best, this is what made me look up the script last night, Matt, because I had heard rumors of that. This was an improvised moment. It might be the best improvised moment in film history. So, I'll play the clip too, but the guards come, you know, the warden and, and, um, Hadley are like, you open this door, do frame. We're going to beat the shit out of you. Like, and he's just, he's sitting there and he's just like, yeah, like this is great. Hands behind his head, enjoying it, enjoying the moment. Right. And he knows he's going to beat hell for this thing. Right. Mm. Uh, looks the warden dead in the face and he's going to like turn off the record player and instead a wry smile tickles his face <laughs> and he turns it up louder mm-hmm. that was tim rob that was an improvised because it's not in the script mm-hmm. in the script it's very eloquently wrote the music plays and andy's actually like kind of conducting in like in his seat there and then they bust in and like beat him and turn the music off that little moment that's Middle finger in the face of authority speaks volumes with no dialogue. I love it so much. I had no idea that's improvised. You're right. That's genius. Genius. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good uh, for Tim Robbins. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was just like, hey, what if I turn the volume up here? Andy? I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. 
Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. It pissed the warden off something awful. Open the door. Open it up! Dufresne, open this door! Turn that off! I am warning you, Dufresne, turn that off! So good. I love it. Yeah. And then what does he spend like 60 days in the Kula? Like he's just like in solitary for this act. But what it provided all these guys was just like what Red says, just this sense of freedom, this sense of being outside the walls, these beautiful voices that we don't even know what they're saying. It's just we've never heard anything so angelic before. That's how you create a hero. Yeah. This huge sacrifice that I'm willing to take on for the betterment of humanity, and it's germane in the environment that you live in. Mm-hmm. Man. Really, really well crafted, and to Tim Robbins' credit, to turn it up then is also That's, there's still a little rebellious piece in here. Again, yeah, setting up what he's going to do eh, 15, 20 minutes from now. I love it. I, I, it's that it's that moment that takes it over the edge for me. Like it's still a great scene, but that that just makes it a little extra, right? I agree with you. Uh, so then we get into this little subplot here, Tommy, with Tommy Williams, right? And he's this. He's got two years in Shawshank. He should be so lucky, right? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but he comes in, this Danny Zuko-looking guy, and, you know, he's talking about how he's just he's just a little, he's a common crook, right? Mm-hmm. He's thief, just, petty just, thief. Yeah, just robbing mom-and-pop shops and whatnot. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But he uh, has some admirable goals. He has a, a baby on the way, a wife back at home, wants to kind of further his education. So Andy helps him try to get his GED, right? But on top of that, he's like, oh, I might have some information about the real killer of your wife, or it's something that sounds like it. Elmo Blatch. What do you think of that? Do you think there's some truth there? Or? Yes. Yeah. I do. The, the name and the uh, circumstances are all too familiar. And I don't think the movie gives you any reason to think that it's a liar. Yeah. I think the movie is yeah, just, very honest about what mm-hmm. it's showing you. Yeah, I think he's pretty genuine when he's giving it to him. So the question then is, if Andy has now this information that might get him a new trial and get him freed from jail, what's he going to do with it? What can he do with it? Yeah. Warden Norton, then we really start to see his true colors. We, we know that he's got kind of like an embezzlement thing that he's working on and that he's keeping some of the money from the state that's been granted to him for his, his own pockets. And, and Andy's helping him with that, right? And Andy's a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So I think Andy makes a mistake in this point, naturally, of believing that Warden Norton is going to help him. What he doesn't realize, though, is if he leaves, Warden Norton has no one anymore to cook the books. And secondarily... Through no fault other than just trying to reassure Warren Norton's worry, yeah, 
once I leave here, I'm not going to say anything about this because I'm just indictable as you are. That's an admission that he knows they're both breaking the law. Yeah. And so once those words come out of his mouth, it's kind of curtains for Andy in that space. And sadly, in one of the more shocking moments in Stephen Kingdom's entire filmography, okay, what happens to Tommy? They kill him. They shoot him. God, I think it's God. Hadley, right? It is Hadley. From so the Watchtower. <laughs> Warden Norton has Tommy meet him outside the Watchtower that it looks like he's escaping. And Norton meets him and he says, I, I want to ask because if I'm going to move on this, I got to be sure that you're accurate. Did you really hear what, what Andy told me? Is that really the truth? I promise I'll swear on the Bible. And Warden Norton, God, in like such a gutless way, doesn't even give Tommy a smoke. Yeah. Puts out his own cigarette. Yeah. Looks up at Hadley, moves away. And how does Hadley kill him? Yeah. Fucking shoots him in the back. Yeah. Leave him to die out there like he was trying to escape prison. Yeah. Villainous. It's 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 such a move. And, and it happens when Andy's in solitary, right? And they come and tell him. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they come and tell. No, 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 that's not true. No, they tell him that the kid passed. That he passed his test, right? His, his GED equivalency yeah. exam. But yeah, they got to shut him up, right? This kind of, the guy that can tell the truth of what happened, you know, who really committed the murder. Yep. And I think it's at that point when Andy realizes, I'm mm, other than red, I'm never leaving this place. Other than red, I really don't have any allies. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm never going to get out of here. Yeah. Meanwhile, what we don't know is, man, he's he's damn near chiseled his way out of this place. Mm-hmm. And so then we get to the moment of the film, right, which right. is Red and Andy sitting here beside a wall, really kind of talking about what Frank Darabont's so good at, right? The human condition. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of talking about just like their current state of things and like. We got no choice but our own, and like, what are we gonna do with that? I didn't shoot my wife, and I didn't shoot her lover. Whatever mistakes I made, I paid for them, and then some. What do you mean? That hotel, that boat. I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. This is a shitty pipe dreams. I mean, Mexico is way to hell down there, and you're in here, and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is. It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Too busy living. You get busy dying. It's goddamn right. Andy. If you ever get out of here, do me a favor. Sure, Andy. Anything. There's a big hayfield up near Buxton. You know where Buxton is? There's a lot of hayfields up there. One in particular. It's got a long rock wall. A big oak tree at the north end. It's like something out of a Robert Frost poem. It's where I asked my wife to marry me. I went there for a picnic and made love under that oak and I asked and she said yes. Promise me, Red, if you ever get out, find that spot. At the base of that wall, you'll find a rock that has no earthly business in a main hayfield. It's a black volcanic glass. Something buried under it, I want you to have. 
What happened? What's buried under there? You'll have to pry it up to see. I think Andy did that all backwards. He took his wife to the tree, had sex with her, and then asked her to marry. You know, you ask her to marry her first, and then you guys have sex in jubilation. He proposes she's all sweaty and all disheveled, <laughs> right? Yeah, true love. <laughs> um... um you know what I love about it? I just listened to it without mm. the visual. Mm-hmm. That little growl that he gets in his voice that we haven't really heard from him the entire film. And he has it when he's finally coming to terms with what really his crime was against his wife. Yeah. And the growl is, I didn't shoot her and I didn't shoot her lover. Yeah. And by God, I've paid for this and I'm done paying for this. And then that tone changes yeah. when he's grounded and red. Yeah. You got to do this for me. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of solidifies it there at the end with, there's something there I want you to have. Mm-hmm. Goes through this really- a seriousness to it. Yeah. Interesting gamut of mm-hmm. serious to a bit vulnerable, yeah. back to serious. And this is a really different moment for Andy. This is not the Andy that we've seen. We have the early Andy that's getting raped and beaten up by Boggs all the time. And then we have the middle library Andy that's- mm-hmm. um, Good-hearted. Messiah-ish yeah. Yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, Moses-like leading these these yeah, uh, guys out of very Exodus. Very well put. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's stolen from the film, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, Exodus is mm-hmm. the where the hammer's hidden too, but yeah. or the rock hammer's hidden. But um, this is a bit more gravelly. Like mm-hmm. the severity of this is yeah. really being carried through. And somebody that I don't think gets a lot of credit for acting, Tim Robbins pretty much kills that scene, doesn't yeah, he? He's really good in this. Yeah. And then you kind of try to think, like, what happened to Tim? I mean, Tim Robbins is going to win an Oscar after this film for Mystic River. What? But then kind of disappear, right? I think he just got tired of acting, man. Yeah. Got tired of hanging out with Susan Sarandon. <laughs> I don't know, whatever, maybe not. Yeah, I like Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Hey, go listen to The Hunger, everybody. You go listen to The Hunger. <laughs> well, yeah, that, interesting, right? That was two years ago already. The Hunger was two years ago already? Yeah, we did that. It was, like, October 21, I think. Oh, my God. Yeah. Crazy, right? Wow. Uh, this is, yeah, this is the moment, right? And I think this is the severity of the way he's gravelly telling Red, go do this for me. And Red's like, yeah, Andy, I'll do it. But like, what am I doing? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And then like, we cut to like the mess hall the next day and, and William Sadler's like, yeah, I gave Andy six foot rope. And he's like, the fuck? Like, you like, you gave him this, he's going to, he's going to kill himself. Dumbass. And so then that next night and your red sitting there, hands in his head, like going like, I'm so helpless. Like my friend's very depressed and distraught, like, and I can do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? And I love the way that Darabont decides to cut this together because like we cut to there and then we cut to the next morning. Get out of here, Nancy's and just all they're checking all the places and like Dufresne, get out of here. And Red's just like, he's hanging from the bars in there, right? It's got to be what he's thinking. And then they go in there. It's an empty cell. And they're like, what's going on in here? And, you know, Warden and Hadley and Red go in there. And they're just like, well, he vanished out of thin air. Then it's the poster, right? Yeah. They poke through it. And what they, about it, fuzzy britches? Yeah. They poke through it and rip it off. And it's the my favorite shot of the film, which is these three guys just aghast at this, like, massive chasm <laughs> I just, I love it so much. It turns that whole scene where he's staring at, whether it's Monroe or mm-hmm. um, Hayworth or... Um, Raquel Welch. Raquel Welch. R.I.P. R- right? R- I- yeah. Uh, staring at them. And you realize, man, he wasn't fantasizing about that girl. He was fantasizing about what's on the other side of that wall. And like, we already set it up earlier, so mm-hmm. not to beat it again. Yeah. What he has to go through, and then maybe you have the dialogue and maybe you don't, but 
crawling through a river of shit to come out clean on the other side. Let's hear it. And to crawl to freedom through 500 yards of shit-smelling foulness I can't even imagine. I couldn't do this. Or maybe I just don't want to. Five hundred yards. That's the length of five football fields. Just shy of half a mile. To Newman, Thomas Newman, Deacons, and Darabont, like that scene when he emerges from the the pipe of shit. Yeah, and it's just, yeah, yeah. Talk about it. Baptismal, cleansing, water. You're on the outside for the first time, I mean, right? I mean, other than seeing Brooks's little saunter into town, this is the first time we've been outside of Shawshank, and like it's very euphoric. It's it's, it's the poster, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something too. The poster kind of spoils the movie before we even kind of really know what it is, right? Yeah, a it's bit. that like moment, but like I guess you don't really know what that's supposed to mean. Uh, it's brilliant, and I like that. Okay, so we found the hole, and then we go back and we get to the events leading up to that, where you know Andy takes the books. Right, this is going to be his evidence that he's going to use for blackmail, and then you know takes the rope that was given to him, and then we get to see him crawl through his little makeshift tunnel, like. His little hammer just, like, burnt to a nub. Nothing left. And then, yeah, him trying to bust open the shit pipe and then to crawl in it. And we said, I don't know if you could hear us. There's no way I could. I, I couldn't crawl through that. I, I, I would die in there. Well, I mean, that's it. You're either going to die in there or you're going to die in there. Yeah. So at that point, you just have to keep pushing forward. I guess you do. And there's there's one path forward. But, man, those quarters, those quarters are close. It's got to stink to high heaven. You're yeah, gross. But at this point... What do you have to lose? I mean, if you die in the pipe, what's the difference of dying in the pipe versus dying in the jail? Because yeah, yeah, yeah you keep yeah, the, 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 this is perseverance in a nutshell, right? It's just you got to keep as shitty as it is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> as bad as it is, as awful as your predicament may be. You just got to keep pushing forward because then the yeah, hopes that like little spring and fountain pond or uh, on the, on the other end, and there you have the rains that are going to cleanse you to your new life. It's great. I love it. When we get out clean on the other this side, this and Forrest Gump would just be like so nauseating. It would be, oh, it, it'd be, it would be way too on our face, and that's a shame, dude. Like I would expect Zemeckis to slay a moment like that, mm-hmm. but here, Darabont and stuff, they they do it. It's the moment we've been waiting for. You go through so much conflict with him, yeah. You get one more really big hurdle that he's got to go over, and it's redeeming for everybody that you've been through this arduous process with this man, mm-hmm. who you know is wrongfully imprisoned and has been you know, 20 years of his life have been burned for something that he didn't do and all the hell that he's gone through and the villains that he's faced and conquered one last physical hurdle to overcome. And then you're in the river and you're clean. But what's even better than that is what's next. And this is the flashback of all the things. So instead of breaking it all down, what I want to ask you is this from all of the flashback sequences that we see, when the reveal of how he got into and out of the tunnel, what's your favorite reveal of all of the things that happen? 
It might be the shoes. Okay, mine too. Yeah, I think it's like he was so coy and had planned everything so meticulously that like when he leaves the guards tower that and he doesn't realize that he took that guy's, he took his shoes, yeah, right? Yeah, And they're nice and shined. Mm-hmm. And yeah, these are, because if he's going to go on the other side, he can't go with his prison, his prison, you know, loafers. He's got to go in some nice shoes because once he's out, his job still isn't done, right? Right. He's got to go finish the rest of the deed, which is getting all this money out of all these laundered accounts, uh, withdrawing it, and then, yeah, I ain't done yet, warden bastard guy, Bob Gutton, who's so good in this movie at playing the bad guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to give all the evidence to the local paper. That way they know how, who you've been beating and killing and laundering here at the, at the Shawshank. The polished shoes are really, really good because yeah. his old Shantate shoes are left in the shoebox that Warden Norton said, polish these up for me. But the other one that's really close to me is the fact that the pants are a little bit high waters. They're Because he's taller than Warden Norton, so they're not quite the perfect fit, but he's got to make it work. I also like the moment, too, during wreck time, he goes and takes his little rock shavings and dumps them out in the prison yard, right? Dumps them out of the hole in his pants. Yeah. And but, I, I think that's that's that might be a little nod to maybe I'm reaching here, but I think that might be a nod to uh, Escape from Alcatraz with mm-hmm. Eastwood because they do that stuff too. Yeah, Tim Robbins needed to make a paper mache version of himself for this movie. That's right, and put it in his bed. That's a pretty good movie, actually. I, I really like that movie, but. No, I love the flashback. I mean, we could have seen all of this and then go back and see the reveal, but seeing the reveal is shocking enough that we got to know, okay, how the hell did this even happen? Yeah. Uh, and it, it pays off. It pays off so well. Uh, and then we're kind of left with it. I mean, we see the law come to the warden, and he's just like, well, they're going to arrest me the coward way out, right? And just, Lord Norton, this prick who's yeah. used the Bible as this vice. Yeah. I love that. In the inside cover is written, Warden Norton, you were right, salvation lay within, is that he opens it up. In the chapter of Exodus is where he opens up to, and that's where the rock hammer's hidden, which is Moses leading the Israelites out of captivity. Yeah. So appropriate and so smart and such a middle finger mm-hmm. to Warden Norton. And yeah, it takes the bullet train express to his own brain, like, like coward's way out, which of course he did. Mm-hmm. But even that, for as much as... I guess he takes the coward's way out. It's, it's just, and I hope it was painful. And like, you realize after all of this thing that Andy has put up the fight long enough to survive, but then there's still one big question, Jesse. Yeah. And that's red because yeah. although red's not out like Brooks, red might as well be Brooks because his best friend is gone. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question now. Okay. Once, once red finally gets proles, which is the great, the great, look, I don't give a shit what you stamp on that. I've been through this 25 times, either frame me or don't. I've got things to do with my and then life. They pass him. And they finally get out. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, when you watched this the first time, did you think he was going to take the same path that Brooks did, especially when he goes into the same room that that halfway house that Brooks is in? A little bit. If not for, I knew I was like, we got to have some sort of like light at the end of the tunnel for for this to to, to kind of really really work i think that would be an unsatisfying ending right when he stepped up on that table in the theater man i was white knuckling it because he pulls out that blade yeah and you're just like here we go again and he's going through the exact same processes that brooks are the job sucks he's lonely he, you know he doesn't understand cars etc 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 and he steps up on that table and it even kind of rocks a little bit yeah and he takes out that blade and he starts scratching oh no yeah. he's writing his his eulogy on that wood yeah and then you get that great moment mm-hmm. where he steps down yeah and he breaks parole yeah god then they're just like 
Yes. A win. Yes. Yeah. So I have another question for you. Mm-hmm. What's a better feeling that part, like when you're watching this as a viewer, mm-hmm. the part when he's on the bus and the wind is open and the wind is oh, blowing yeah, through his hair great. and he's, or is it when he sees Andy on the beach? Which of those two is a more rewarding moment? It's probably Andy. Cause you know, it's again, I love that it's dialogueless and they're not really speaking. It's this understanding of like, fuck, we both made it right. Uh, but him head out the window as he's like, I don't know where this is taking me. I just hope I see my friend and to shake his hand one day, mm, whatever he says. So beautiful. That's really good too. But then him at the, him at the rock wall as well. I mean, he's taken this scavenger. I mean, I would need to have written this down. I wouldn't remember where this was. Right. <laughs> this rock wall that he finds in the middle of nowhere. And then you have the volcanic rock hiding this, you know, letter in this cache, right? To like, here, go a little bit further. And this is where I'll be. Say what to nail, right? And you get what's left in there was the cash mm-hmm. to get the get enough to get there. The bus fare, yeah. Because uh, Andy has what three point equivalent of like three point some million today, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, he's he's got he's he's set up nicely here, indeed. And I like that they go to Mexico because like in forties. I mean, these guys could essentially just stay undercover and never be found again, right? Mm-hmm. Live out their lives happily. Yeah, I really dig it. I really like the ending. I, I kind of hate that, you know, the town, as great as that movie is, kind of cribs this rock wall, right, at the end of the at the end of the town, right? Affleck's uh, little heist film. Mm-hmm. But him going, and then, yeah, when we pull back, when Deacons pulls that camera back, and it's like, Brooks was here, and so was Red. Oh, my God, that's that. That's a stand-up and cheer moment, too, right? Yeah. And then we get that moment on the beach, and yeah, do you like do you like how that ends? Like, would you want a little no. dialogue? I mean, you know, no. Hitchcock would have us chatting it about <laughs> out there, but Liz Glotzer made a good choice. Like, we get it; they're together. They're going to open this fishing business. Who cares if they ever meet any women? They have each other. It's the like you've got it. They're yeah. good. I don't think, and I don't think King would have ended it this well too, right? I Not mean, right. He, him and him and Hitchcock like struggle with endings. They're both cursed with the endings as great as storytellers as they are. But man, mm-hmm. we cut out and we're panning out to the sea and the credits start rolling. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how this thing needed to end. Right. You just clap. Yeah. And you're just, you're just very satisfied and it's very, it's a great joyous, not like nauseating inducing ending. This fucking feather ain't floating about up to heaven again. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Just, but say Wataneo is kind of like a heaven, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's this exodus, this, this thing that we're attaining to in our Christian mythology. And yeah, this is paradise for these two guys. Yeah. I'd like to spend like, you know, if I spent 40 years incarcerated, living out on the beach here, shucking, shucking, uh, clams and, and playing chess and getting rip shit on, on Bohemian beer. Yeah. Sign me up. Let's go. Yeah, Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great ending it's I, I don't think you could have ended this film any better no you couldn't have uh well let's get right to it i mean you know the kind of legacy of this film we got to talk the numbers you know it's what we what we do i love i love analyzing budgets and grosses so 25 million dollar budget a little pricey for a film like this right i mean a lot of that's location which was the ohio state uh reformatory in mansfield ohio which they have now turned into this shawshank just like tourist trap right you can go tour it they got you could eat a shawshank sandwich at like a local deli or around there Mm. i might like to do that one of these days but uh that's kind of pricey and then so 16 million dollar gross on its initial run yeah it's just yeah that's that's tough i mean no one in the theater speaks volumes right right and you would you say you were like second week or third week Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. i mean you would expect at least 10 people half full maybe something something 
So then after the Oscar noms come out, this film's nominated for seven Academy Awards. It doesn't win any, which, what the hell, right? Right. How does Deacons not win? How does, Freeman was nominated for actor? Why wasn't he nominated for supporting? supporting? If he was in there, if Freeman was in there with Samuel Jackson and Martin Landau, I think Freeman gives all those guys a run for their money. Sure. Jackson's pretty good though too. I mean that, that mm-hmm. that's a real tight race, mm-hmm. and then it goes to kind of the legacy stalwart Martin Landau for a really good Bill Lugosi performance in Edward. Yeah. Uh, uh, screenplay it loses, it loses pitch, it loses everything, right? Yeah. So, but then afterwards it, it gets put back in the theaters. It, it gets to like I think seventy nine million worldwide, which uh, that's okay, right? But it's still kind of it's not Forrest Gump cash, right? No, it ain't that Gump money, it ain't that Bubba Gump shrimp money. <laughs> <laughs> But then it's it's in uh, syndication where this thing finds its legs. Like I said, it gets sold to TNT. They play it like every other weekend. Uh, the VHS rentals of this thing. I mean, people start renting the hell out of this thing. And then it starts getting word of mouth of like, hey, this film's actually pretty good. Uh, and then it starts to find its audience in kind of this cult atmosphere fashion. I mean, you're lucky that you got to see it in theaters, right? Yeah. But... Oftentimes, I mean, it's afterwards and much like the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Years later, now we're like appreciating it for the masterpiece that it really is. Right. And I think that's the cool part about it. Uh, I think that's why it has just such longevity. I know I promised you um, some, some casting choices. So here we go. So when Rob Reiner was Frank, I want to make Shawshank Redemption. I'm going to cast Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford in this film, which you know what? That that film might actually make money because those guys are names, right? Yeah. I don't know if I see it, but I'll watch that movie. I'd see that too. I'd watch Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford is a pretty interesting combo. Yeah. Uh, but here's a few uh, other ones. So for for Andy, we got uh, Hackman, mm. Robert Duvall, Clint Eastwood, uh, Paul Newman, mm. Kevin Costner, Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen, and then two that I'm curious about. Let's play devil's advocate here for just a little bit. Tim Robbins is great in this film, but... Tom Hanks was one of Frank Darabont's top choices. Yeah. And the reason he couldn't take it was he was already committed to Gump. Does Tom Hanks make this? I think Tom Hanks might make this, or I think he might. I think it would be a good performance by Hanks sure. in this film. Yeah, he, he absolutely could pull it off, yes. And maybe the the payback is, well, you know, you missed out on this. So I'll put you in Green Mile, right? Yeah. I I'm curious about that one. But then if we're playing revisionist film history at that point, so Hanks can't do Forrest Gump. So, is Travolta playing Gump? Which, oh my God, I don't even want to mm. quantificate what that looks like. Mm. But then Travolta can't be in Pulp Fiction. Good point. Like, we're, we're just, we're essentially rewriting all of the three big films of that year, right? How interesting, yeah. Because yeah. there's a part of me that wants to see what Hanks would do as Andy Dufresne, mm-hmm. this kind of melancholy thing. And then the other one, and I know we've done done him on the podcast before, but him in a restrained role might Pacino? Nicolas Cage. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, we're not going wild with Cageisms. And I mean, this is a fairly restrained film, which we know is not his strength, right? But you know, this a little leaving Las Vegas with Cage in this in this film. I might want to see a little of that. Ooh, that's a tough sell. But not enough to like re undo the whole movie, right? I mean, it's just no. it's it's a, it's, it's a, interesting. It's a smidge of curiosity, oh, right? I'll give you that. What yes. Nicolas Cage could do with a really great screenplay. Yeah. And a director that like is really kind of reining him into this character, 
uh, I, I'm curious, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I mentioned Gandolfini as Boggs. I don't really have anything else outside of Harrison Ford uh, for Red. Um, so we do have to talk about this is the number one film on IMDb's top 250. Like, what do you kind of equate to that? Because that you know that that's a good barometer of film because it's like user rankings. It's not critics getting paid off for like, you know, like my movie, right? I mean, this is like you and me, like going and putting our ratings on there. This is number one. It's This is one, Godfather's two, Dark Knight's three, like, then this has been number one since like 2007. Yeah. Since I've been using that website, it's been number one. Yeah. What do you think of that? Uh, it puts it in like revolver or rubber sole or whatever you want to put mm. in that category. It's, it's that quality and that's high praise. There's few things you can say, are the greatest and it's debatable. It's IMDb. Yeah. Um, you know, um, different film rankings have different places for this. It's, you know, usually in the top 15 of just about everything. I think on, on AFIs, I think it's like, maybe it didn't make the, 30, initial, right? it didn't make the initial list. And then when they did 2007's 10th anniversary, I think it was like 73. That's wrong. Um, <sighs> I think it speaks to like the popularity. IMDb has certainly a fan piece in there as well, how popular it is among the populace. But here's one thing I'll say about this film that I think speaks volumes. No matter where it is in the screening, when I watch it, I will always continue to watch it. It's not one of these, there's certain films like, I can only watch that from the beginning or as we've said in this, I don't really ever want to watch that again. (laughs) We've said that a lot. There's a lot of replayability in this because it's just so wildly entertaining and so satisfying. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think the Shawshank's greatest trait is how satisfying it is for the viewer. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite tasting note, favorite scene, favorite moment of the Shawshank redemption. We've talked about it. It's the beach when they hug on the beach. Mm-hmm. It's so worth everything you've been through with the two of them. Yeah. How about for you? It's the music moment. It's just that little push of the volume knob is just like, I understand that character inside and out with a little bit of action and no dialogue. My that, second, I, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, and I, I love moments like that. I like when characters can kind of transcend, you know, outside of like being us, like, like spoon fed things, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just, we get everything we need in that moment. And that's as triumphant a moment as getting out of the ship pipe. Mm-hmm. Second close for me is when Red is out the um, oak tree. Mm-hmm. And Newman hits those beautiful crescendos on that score. That is just gorgeous filmography and cinematography. Yeah, I'll play a little bit here in in just a bit. But speaking of shit pipes, what's the... Oh, my God! Mine's the shit pipe. I can't even just put my feet in, like, having to crawl through feces Mm -hmm. and piss and bile. Vomit, uh, blood. For how long did you say? Five football fields? Oh, no way. And claustrophobic? I couldn't... I I would, dude, I would die in the the shit pipe. (laughs) Brooks for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And again, that's my... That was my moment. That was the turning point of the film for me. Yeah. What would you call that? Was that the... the Midpoint? Midpoint of Act 2, right? so, yeah. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on The Shawshank Redemption? Tim Robbins? I'm going to go with Robbins. Boy, there's a lot of candidates here. I like some of those choices you put in there. Uh, some interesting ideas, and it's fun to kind of hypothesize, but it's best Tim Robbins has yeah. ever been and ever will be. Yeah. What about you? Frank Darabont. Yeah, hard to go there, too. Uh, it's just when you look at that screenplay, when you look at the direction and just getting all these elements to the finish line, it's it's a great directorial job. Because mm-hmm. Zemeckis one. I don't even think 
Frank was nominated for, I'll, I'll double check. I'll double check that here in a second. He should have won. Yeah. Hands down. Tarantino's screenplay is amazing. I love Pulp Fiction, but this directorial job in this film is masterful. It's, yeah, it, it's got to be him. It's absolutely. And I wish the guy was making more movies, man. Like, was The Mist was the last film he made. Yeah, so Mission Impossible Mist is in there. Yeah. What, uh, how are you going to rate and grade uh, the Shawshank Redemption? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf, and then kind of give us our Oscar take. I think we kind of know where we're going with this one, so. There is no higher bottle of liquor on my film liquor rankings. This is number one for me of all time. This is my all-time favorite movie. I think it's an imperfect film. Uh, there's not a moment that I can take issue with. It's brilliantly written, character about all of the characters. It's a perfect movie. It is my favorite film of all time. Top shelf, top shelf, top shelf, top shelf, top shelf, top shelf. Pappy Van Winkle. The best picture winner of 94? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't nominated. He was nominated for best adapted screenplay. Like, come on, people. Like, Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it didn't win anything. He didn't even give it to, like, for, like, sound editing or anything like that. Or film editing and best sound. Best original score. Come on, Nothing. People. I know, it's annoying. Yeah. It's top shelf for me, too. Yeah. It's my second favorite Stephen King adaptation. Uh, it's endlessly watchable. It's inspirational. It's hopeful. It's got a one of the best endings of all time. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a perfect movie. It's, like, I wouldn't change, even just playing devil's advocate with the casting, like, as much as I would want to see t- Hanks, like, I, I really don't want to change the formula of what makes this thing tick. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, one of the few times I actually liked Tim Robbins in a movie, so yeah. there's that. Um, I do like Jacob's Ladder and, you know, parts of Mystic River, but, like, this is this is his vehicle, and, you know, it was Freeman's great in it, Darebound's amazing, the music, the cinematography, it's just, it's tens across the board, and yeah, uh, the kind of, you know, the Tarantino fan in me, I want to give a little love to Pulp Fiction, getting some best picture love here. It's weird, strange, you know, give it to the Gimp movie, man. Mm-hmm. It's just, that movie's just a strange, wild time that's endlessly rewatchable. Uh, yeah. But I can't deny this film. I can't deny, you know, how good this this film is, and it should have walked away with, with the top prize. It, it, but maybe that wasn't in the cards. You know, we talk about the divine intervention of this film and its production and getting to where I don't think it was ever destined to win Best Picture because its afterlife was word of mouth. Yeah. And that's sometimes a little bit better than winning the top prize. Right. So to that. To that. To that. That's a wrap on Shawshank Redemption. I can't wait to do this now. Let's get started with our nightcap. Newman's score always reminds me of it. Like it would fit so perfectly in like a film about like baseball. Yeah. Like the natural or like one of those films. Like it just has like the, like you would play that after they hit the home run and we won the game. Right. Yeah. 
<clears throat> but here it's like, oh, we got out of prison and we're like, we can be free again. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like Love it. Love that too. Yeah. All righty, set us up. Second piece is with the three films that we are remaking from Stephen King, you get to pick any director or living or dead to do them. Can't wait to do this. Three, three, two, two, one, one. Okay. So number three was thinner. Yep. If I'm doing a film about body dysmorphia and body whore. Got it. Yeah, I know where this is going. Yeah. Well, I'm not going with Pa. I'm going with Son. Yeah. Give me Brandon Cronenberg doing thinner. Have to. That could slay. And I told you off mic that I saw Infinity Pool and it was amazing. Fucking awesome. Cool. Uh, He's rising in my ranks of best working filmmakers. So that guy doing a, a, a better, more serious take on eating and you're losing weight just sign me up i want mm. i want every piece of that no, love that mm-hmm. number three for me was salem's lot mm-hmm. ready for this yeah ari aster i wouldn't say he's what would come to mind normally with monster ish or classic del toro's a possibility there yeah but i think ari aster adds a level of um severity to this film that i think would make it all the more interesting mm-hmm. kind of take some of the camp out of it that i think this movie is plagued by for no reason other than Budget, yeah, David Saul, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, budget, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like the Salem's Lot idea, and it's and then Rob Lowe, right? Yeah, hasn't been taken seriously enough for right. I think the gravity that that film could carry, which is a true horror film. Yeah, great choice. Thanks. That might be a little psychologically scarring for us because mm-hmm. you know he's going to put something in there that's going to like really fuck us up, right? Yeah. Uh, number twos. Number two for me was Dark Tower. Yep. It's a big, grand film epic series, and it's going to have a lot of special effects. I need a guy that knows how to do that on a grand scale and has some experience in the fantasy realm. I want Peter Jackson doing the Dark Tower series. Heck yeah, you do. And I also want it because I kind of want Peter Jackson to kind of course correct after all the Hobbit nonsense. Like, Mm -hmm. I I know that guy has a few good films left in him. Yeah. That would be a great project for him to tackle. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Him and the Weddle Workshop doing their magic that they did with that original trilogy. He he knows the scope of what that would need to be, right? Mm-hmm. And coming from literature, he's already done it. Just do it again. <laughs> Good, Jesse. Yeah. I like that one too. Okay. Two for me was Christine, mm-hmm. inspired by Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Vanishing Point. I want Mr. Quentin Tarantino to direct that film. Wouldn't you like to see him build a relationship between a boy and a machine? Yeah. We've also seen Death Proof. I know that's not his, yeah. but you know where I'm going with mm-hmm. that. Um, give me that. Think of the soundtrack. I can't. Yeah. Especially and because it would be the car soundtrack playing the music. Yeah. Love it. Oh, that would be great. And instead of Harry Dean Stanton as the police investigator, we got to get Kurt Russell in there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we got to get him in there. Yeah. Great, great choice. Thanks. Number ones. My number one was Dolores Claiborne. And I want, you know, if we're doing Thriller kind of period PC thriller. This is some guys that I also need some course correction from. I want the Coen brothers doing Dolores Claiborne. And I want Francis McDormand playing Dolores Claiborne Mm -hmm. in in my film. So uh, I think that could really work. It's been a while since they've kind of delivered a winner for me. That freaking Hail Caesar, just that that wasn't my cup of tea. Tragedy of Macbeth. Like, what are those guys doing? But, you know, they have made... Several films that I really like. And can you see those guys doing like a blood simple esque thriller in the vein of Stephen King? Hell yes. I think that could really work. So that's my number one. I'd, I'd really like to see that movie. I would want to see that movie too. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, this probably isn't going to be a surprise to you. Inspired by Yellowstone and all of those other things, I want Taylor Sheridan to finally get his mitts on the Dark Tower. Yeah, that could be interesting. And do it. Let's go. Yeah. Let's roll it out. All seven seasons of it, go. That could be good. It would he, be good. He would have to, I mean, he would just have to do... Just do Western, but you got to give us like the fantasy sci-fi spin on that, right? Yeah. Which he could definitely do. Yeah. Speaking, but just because the Yellowstone just so up in the air, like, dude, what the fuck? Like Kevin Costner, going what's he doing? Out and Matthew McConaughey in. Yeah, I mean that sounds great, but it sounds like they're doing like a soft reboot. Like, what's going on over there? Who knows? Interesting. Great choices. Yours too. That was, you know, the, you know, when you pitched it to me, I was, I could think of some of. Uh, I tried to throw Children of the Corn in there, but I just don't think they're salvaging that idea. I think it's kind of a stupid idea, and it's never worked in any iteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't include that one, but there, there's a few that I just be like, yeah, with the right budget and attention. I, Cujo kind of floated around there. Yeah, I thought about that one too. I think there's there's something there, but to that, to to this cask. It's fun. Six weeks of Oscars and Oscar talk. What should have won? What should have won? Is this still the biggest mystery? We're still talking about ordinary people. <laughs> Never going to leave me. Interesting. I guess that was the lesson at the end of the cast, right? Yep. But we're going to course correct a little bit here. We were having some big releases uh, coming up and we're going to start building to a lot of that. But we've had a big one come out in the next week. Uh, Matt, are we really doing it? Are we going back into the quantum realm? We are. <laughs> Shit. We are. Because the last time we did this was interesting to say the least. Yeah, it was. I haven't seen the movie. You've seen it. Mm-hmm. Are we in for another interesting conversation talking about the quantum realm? Very interesting oh conversation. My God. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Uh, so next week we're going to do Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. you know, our usual Marvel soapbox. Here we go again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm interested to talk about because this is supposed to be the phase five starter that propels us into their grand scheme of things. Meet Kang, everybody. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm sure this will be a really rich conversation. And then, yeah, what's coming in the next few weeks is, yeah, we're revisiting some franchise stalwarts. So I can't wait to wait to get to that. Indeed we are. So to that, to that. Cheers. I got to get going. Maybe you can help me, but I got to chisel through the walls here. I think I got some vermin in the walls. We got to take care of them. Um, but I'd rather probably deal with that than the pile uh, than the pipe of shit. I'm going to book us a charter to Mexico. We're out of here. There you go. Yeah, let's have the shrimp pole boys from last week on the beach in Mexico. Love it. Let's do it. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Shawshank Redemption is property of Columbia Pictures and Castle Rock Entertainment. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time. Cheers. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. A role violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. Old Hancock, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain.
I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. <laughs> 